This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome to the Webby Podcast, where we share the stories of the internet in more than five-word speeches. Women, look what we did! I got five on it. (laughs) Enough red, enough blue, purple. Teenage girls are the future. Thank you. Here's your host, Webby's executive director, David Michelle Davies. Hey, welcome back. In 1984, 37% of all computer science graduates were women. But today, that number is just 18%. Why is that? Our guest today is the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, a national nonprofit organization working to close the gender gap in technology. Though not herself a coder, Reshma Saujani started the organization in 2012. In just five years, they've gone from teaching computer programming to 20 girls in New York City to now over 40,000 in all 50 states, which, believe it or not, is the same number of total graduates each year with degrees in computer science. Here's my conversation with Reshma Saujani. You started Girls Who Code in 2012. Can you tell us why you started it and how the organization works? Yeah, so I'm like a weird person to start Girls Who Code. Um, I'm not a coder. I majored in like poli-sci and speech communications. I saw kind of, I guess, up up close and personal the the lack of women in, in this field when I was running for office in 2010. So I ran for Congress in 2010 as, you know, the first South Asian woman to run you know, ran against someone who'd been there for 18 years. I thought that was a great idea. Um, but as part as a part of that journey, like I'd end up going to a lot of schools and I'd see like computer labs full of like the next Mark Zuckerbergs. And I was like, where are the girls? And so And this is all in New York. New this York is City. all in New York. And what district were you? I like, ran in the 14th you? district. Okay. So um, Upper East Side, uh, Lower East Side, and now a little piece of uh, of Chelsea against Carolyn Maloney in the Democratic mm-hmm. primary. Um and so that's what really first kind of turned me on, that there was a problem. And so, like, my whole life I've been working on women's and girls' issues. You know, I've been an activist. And so I just didn't get, like, where why women were not in an industry that was clear, clearly shaping our future, right? In 2010, I remember, you know, when President Obama had, like, the first Twitter town hall. You know, Facebook was kind of disrupting everything. And so you had these companies where – you know, 85% of the consumer base or the user base was female, but they're all run by by white men. And so I didn't get it. And so I wanted to understand it. And so I spent about a year and a half, like, researching all things women in tech, you know, met with people who are much smarter than me to understand, like, what's the current intervention? How are we teaching girls computer science? If they're dropping out, why are they saying that they're dropping out? 
And what were, so what do they? What do people tell you? So, you must you have know, heard a lot of different. Yeah, reasons, I heard a right? lot of different things. Well, I think the one thing I did hear was like it's not an aptitude issue. Like right. girls are actually outperforming boys in math and science from middle school on up. That it's it is definitely culture has played a huge role, right? That in the 1980s, almost 37 percent of computer science graduates were women. So if you and I walked into Atari's gaming camp in the 80s, it would have been like half boys and half girls. But today you walk into any, uh, you know, whether it's a video game camp or it's a computer science class, it's typically like 80% boys and 20% girls. So at a time where, you know, technology is a part of everything we do, like we're losing women. It's actually going the wrong way. Yeah, which is bizarre. And so a lot of it had to do with culture. And so I don't know if you remember, do you remember Weird Science, Revenge of the Nerds? Yeah, like, of do you remember those movies, yeah, right? yeah, So sure. like in the 80s is where he was born, like the kind of the dorky guy sitting in front of a computer, like in a basement somewhere, like drinking a Red Bull, right? right. And so anytime women and girls turned on the television and they saw a programmer or a hacker or a computer scientist, it was like a dude who looked nothing like them and who, quite frankly, wasn't doing work that they found that was interesting. So it turned girls off hmm. and they started op- opting out. And you saw this happen year after year after year after year after year. And I don't feel like it's because I go to I go to college campuses all the time and I ask their engineering departments or their computer science departments, like, what were you did you notice this like slow drip of women? And it, I think a lot of people feel like they didn't really wake up to it until like, you know, five the past few years where they're right. like, wait a minute here. Like, where'd they all go? And I'm sure I guess uh the cult I mean that event eventually sort of bred a culture where sort of male-dominated culture within engineering teams and so forth. And then it probably really becomes a turnoff to... Yeah. Well, then it's like you have high attrition rates the first couple years in, you know, in tech jobs because, you know, it's cultures that a lot of women don't want to be a part of or don't want to work in. Right. It's isolating. So you went around, you talked to all these... Different people throughout New Talk York. Talked to these different people, and then in 2012, I was like, I got it. Like, I want to do a pilot program. I borrowed a friend's conference room, my friend Brian O'Kelly, who runs AppNexus. I, you know, bought the girls pizza. I handpicked my first 20 girls, and I was like, let's see what happens. And, like, the most powerful thing for me was that first cohort of girls, the things that they wanted to build – Right. They were it was like Leslie who lived in a community in Queens where there were a lot of Latina bodega owners or, or, or small business owners. And many of them, you know, businesses had been decimated from Sandy um, and they wanted they had no social media presence. And so she wanted to build websites for them to help them. It was, you know, Cora, whose father was diagnosed with cancer when she was, you know, five years old and decided she was going to be a doctor to save his life. You know, she built an algorithm to help detect whether a cancer was, is benign or malignant. And she was 16. Yeah. So when I have seen that, I was like, wow, like, this is it. Like, we can create a movement of young women who are going to be change makers. And you mentioned, I think you mentioned that you didn't have a coding background no. yourself. So was it? Like intimidating to so it's be so trying weird. To these I don't people, you know? think I thought about it. Yeah. Like because I think I had just run this upstart race where I got my ass kicked and it was liberating because for so long in my life I was just actually actually just at my high school on Monday in Schaumburg, Illinois. And it was like a big flashback to like, you know, being, you know, fifteen years old. And I, I my whole life I was searching for the perfect credential. You know, I wanted to get all A's. I wanted to go to the top schools and then the top firms and then and I wasn't really taking a look at the bigger picture to say how are any how are any of these things leading to 
being, uh, you know, making social impact, which is what I wanted to do since I was 12 because my parents came here as refugees. And so I've always been very passionate about that. So to me, like running a race and, and losing so badly, you know, facing public humiliation, something not working out for me in many ways was just a rush because I was like, wow, like this is what it feels like when you take risks. Like this is great. Even though it didn't work out, like I'm doing this again. Mm-hmm. And Girls Who Code kind of felt like that, right? It was like, I have an idea, like I'm going to try it. And even though I don't know how to do the very thing I'm actually teaching girls to do, in some ways that makes me pretty damn qualified because like had I not faced many of the constraints that many of my girls fe- faced, like I would have gone into computer science. Like I would be it. Right an entrepreneur right. that had a technical background. Well, so tell me a little bit about your background and where you grew up and and how that influenced yeah. wanting to go into social change. So, you know, my parents came here as refugees in the in 1973. Uh, there was like a crazy dictator in Uganda who like had a dream, I feel like, and woke up one night and said, you know what, I'm going to expel all the Indians from the country and they have 90 days to leave. It was the Idi Amin, yeah. right? Yeah. And pretty, so my parents were, were caught up in that. Wow. And... Um, they were lucky to have engineering degrees. And in the 1970s, this country was desperately seeking engineers. And so they gave out, you know, a thousand um, green cards basically to uh, to a thousand Ugandan refugees. My parents were two of those people who were lucky to get one. And so, you know, they came to this country with nothing. And what kind of engineers were they? My, my mother is a biomedical engineer. My father's a civil engineer. And... Um, you know, they worked really hard and saved every dollar and didn't have any friends or family, didn't know the language. My father had to change his name from Mukun to Mike just to get a job. And mm. the 80s in the Midwest wasn't necessarily very nice to people who look like me. Yeah. You know, my mother would wear a sari and people would make fun of her and like, oh, are you born with a dot on your head? Like, you know, it was hard. It was hard growing up in Schaumburg, being one of the only and Did they feel like they you had to really assimilate? Would oh, sort yeah. Sort of like even stop oh, speaking my, they, a different language totally. and all that kind of stuff? I yeah. barely can speak Gujarati. And my parents, to- I mean, my father changed his name to Mike, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know how more assimilated that that, that gets, right? Um, but yeah, because they felt like they had to protect us and they wanted us to fit in. Yeah. You know, my dad would go to like Toastmaster classes to get rid of his accent. Um, you know, I, it was it was real. Yeah. So I mean, so you had you had some experience, obviously a, a very important experience with uh, needing social support. You could say firsthand growing up. Yeah, I mean, I think for for a while I wanted to just fit in. Okay. Like I remember going, you know, to like the Kmart and like looking. Do you remember those like uh, keychains they used to have with people's name on them that were like. Uh, uh, license plates. I always wanted one that said Rushmore. Right, right. And I was just so mad at my parents that they didn't name me like Jennifer or like Tammy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like Beth. I just wanted one of those keychains. And so I think for 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 a while up and through middle school, that's kind of the world I lived in, yeah. which was just hiding who I was and wanting to be wanting to be someone else. Um, and then you know I actually got into a schoolyard fight you know, the last day of eighth grade, and that changed my perspective because I realized that, look, I'm always going to be brown. Right. My name's always going to be Reshma. I'm always going to be, you know, South Asian American. And uh, I need to educate people about difference instead of hiding from it. Right. And that kind of led me to becoming an activist and really haven't stopped ever since. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, your sort of aspiration for, like, degrees and so yeah. forth. But you have a lot of very yes. in- incredible... Yes, very expensive degrees. Well, also <laughs> well-earned, I'm sure. 
Um, but not in computer science again. You're really not pursuing in a, a sort of like totally legal, political yeah. activist life, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really know anybody that was a computer scientist. I didn't think that that was a degree that was so much me. And I had it in my head that I was bad at math. Mm. And I think that sometimes we think that skill, our skills are fixed. You're either good at something or you're bad at something. And so that, that I mean, even, I mean, even uh, I was working on a book about bravery after my TED Talk and where I was talking to my writing partner about this t- this morning. And it, we were saying, you know, it's so funny how this father was telling me a story about he was doing a math assignment with his daughter and she just gets frustrated. She's like, you know, sixth grade and she just starts crying. And it was funny, I was thinking about, for, even for me, like if I, if someone buys my son a toy and I can't figure it out within like two minutes, I like throw it to my husband, frustrated, like, can you just do this? Like, when did we start getting frustrated with challenge right. or annoyed or fearful? Like, when did we learn that? Yeah. And yeah, and I think that that's something for, for me and for many women is such a, um, really keeps us, holds us back. And th- I mean, you have a TED talk which is largely about the subject, yeah. and I, you know, I think one of the, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Uh, but one of the really nice things is you're seeing this conversation taking place in sort of community groups and circles, like throughout. You know, I'm a parent, and yeah. this is a conversation that parents of boys and girls have, yeah. now, right, about yeah. not rewarding or acknowledging yeah. just like you know succeeding, yeah. but the journey yeah. and the trying yeah. and so forth. But tell me a bit about how you came. To- so it came to that because you have a really great TED Talk, which yeah. people should um, really go watch on the TED site, obviously. Thank um, you. Um, I, you know, it's, well, you know, you get you get the email from TED being like, would you like to do a TED Talk? You know, and you're like, ah. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and they're like, say something new. So it's like, but I wanted it. I did. I wanted to, I've been, you know, in the company of, of high school women for the past six years. I've been doing a lot of work on women's leadership. And I was think I wanted to take a step back and say, well, what if I've seen and I've learned and as I thought about how girls approach coding, it really came to me that like, you know, we are really teaching our girls to be perfect and we're raising our boys to be brave. And you see it, you know, at my son's two years old and I see it like in his swim class where like, you know, when the little girls are learning to swim, they're like, it's okay, honey, you know, don't get your face wet. And with the boys, they're like pushing them into the deep end at like six months, right? Because right? they're teaching them how to be fearless, yeah. how to be men, right? When they crawl to the top of the monkey bars and just jump off, we... we we clap our hands. But for our girls, we're like constantly fixing their bows and their dresses and making sure that they don't have food on their dress. Yeah. You know, it's like we're rewarding perfectionism. And I think that in, when they get into school, it's like it's one credential after another credential after another credential after another credential. And um, I think what that what's happening is that women are becoming risk averse because they think that their skill set is fixed. And they you know, will continue to gravitate towards things that they think that they're good at and double down on those things. And they'll move away, you know what I mean, from the subjects or the topics or the activities that they think that they're not good at. And so they don't get used to challenge or rejection. And when they face rejection for the first time, it's scarring. Yeah. And it starts, I mean, you were mentioning your your son who's two. Yeah, it starts so young. It starts so young, right? So So young. What do you, I mean, what do you think the... With very, like, feminist parents. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, we're here. It's happen, it happens in New York. There's People are super aware in New York yeah. and stuff. Where, what do you think the... Is it just, like, an ongoing conversation that needs to be had to sort I, of reshape I think reshape we need to rethink we, parenting. Yeah. So I think for so long, we thought that the way to parent girls was to coddle them and protect them and to big up their confidence. And I think by doing that, we have sheltered them from any real rejection. And when they face rejection, they break. Hmm. Um, so I think we need to rethink that. 
and I, you know, I'm, and I'm thinking, and then, so I think, and I think we need to be very aware and intentional about the things that we do to our girls to help build bravery. I don't know if it's, it's something as small as like when something breaks in your house, take your daughter to fix it, you know, put in a drill in her hand very yeah. early, like keep her in the, if she sucks at gymnastics, keep, take her to gymnastics every day. Right. Like not so she can improve. So she knows what it feels like to not be that good. Right, right. Right? So I think it's just, I feel like it's having a different perspective towards raising girls. It's such a hard thing to to teach people, though, or to even socialize, though, right? Because when your people are new parents, like, they just yeah. have no idea what they're doing anyway. And to be aware yeah. of, you know, just... You yeah, know, to be so self-aware, it's it's, it's hard. really hard to. Yeah. And I think there needs to be like intergenerational conversation around that because at the flip side, I have a lot of I have a lot of dads who like literally break up into tears because their daughters at 16, 17, 18 are so broken. Mm. You know, there's my friend Rachel Simmons is writing a book on this, but there's a real mental health crisis happening in college campuses where women, young women, are creating are, are um, you know, having the suicide rates are much higher for them. And a lot of that is because all through high school, they do everything right, you know, get straight A's, you know, get four hours of sleep, you know, don't eat. So they're a size two and are captain of like the soccer team and all for the, you know, degree, all for getting into NYU or Columbia or Harvard or whatever it is. And they get there and like, this is it. And they have to do it all over again. And it's, it's destabilizing. Mm. I don't know why. And I, I mean, I think that boys, yes, they're affected by this. But not at the same degree of in of of dehabil- it, it, it's destabilizing for women. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I mean, there's so many different input points to try and like turn around and change and control. Right? It's not yeah. just the parents. It's like the school and the friends and the, the educators and the seven hundred right, ads every, they see on yeah, the walk to school. All of it. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, on this topic, what about in work environments? Right. So. How can have you seen success stories of like how employers can nurture you know yeah. women taking risks at work right. as opposed to nurture women feeling like they need to be perfect at work? Well, I think that we have to like continue to offer critical feedback because I think for a lot of women they break down when they receive critical feedback, and that feedback is not bad, and the improvement is good. That greatness is about kind of tiptoeing to the edge of your abilities, right? Like I have a father who. You know, even like on Monday, you know, I gave a speech at my high school, got in the car, and he was like, well, I think you could have said that differently. You know, I lived through critical feedback. So I am always trying to get better. Like, you know, I will, I want to hear what I did wrong, not how I did well, right? That's how I thrive. So how do we, how do we, how do we teach that in the workplace? And, you know, be, be dogged about that. Because I think sometimes because we don't want to have hard conversations, we want to make, not make people, quote, feel bad, we don't tell them the truth. Yeah. And we don't help them improve. And so I think that we need to really be intentional in, in about how do we make sure that we're giving critical feedback and how do we celebrate failure, I mean, genuinely, right? So, like, just like we're, we're like, you know, rewarding people for doing a great job, I think we need to reward people for, you know, This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love. 
and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. It not working out, but trying. Right. And trying something new. Yeah. So much, I mean, so much of that stuff in the workplace is dominated by the trials and tribulations of like interpersonal relationships, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And I guess some of the examples you see out there are where people bring like data and surveying and stuff into that type of a feedback loop, yeah. which helps. Yeah. yeah. Are you guys, do you do, do you focus on this at Girls Girls Who Code, this sort of feedback loop for everybody who works at Girls yeah. Who Code? Yeah. We, I mean, we, we try to do more of it. I think we're getting better at it. Um, of like, you know, candid feedback and candor, candor, you know, and, and trying to make people feel comfortable of just being, um, forthright. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about you in your talk and, and some of the other things I've read from you, you talk a bit about, uh, the research that really supports how, uh, having more women in certain work teams supports more creativity. Yeah. Can you talk about that a well, bit? I think we know that basically having diverse teams leads to more diverse results. Yeah. And I think even for a lot of tech companies, I think they recognize that they just simply can't solve problems. Like if you are a tech company, you're trying to get more women to the polls, but your engineering team has two females on it, you're not going to solve that problem. You know, and so I think that like I think that they get it right, just not only from a business perspective, but from an innovation perspective, that like having more diverse teams is just going to lead to better ideas. Yeah. Do you? Um, you were talking at the top before we sort of kicked off here. We were talking about where what's what's going on with Girls Who Code like this month. Yeah. You're saying it's summertime. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the like yeah. the summer programs and how that so, works. So you know, and how we, old are the how, how old, old are the, are the girls? girls these days yeah. and like what's the scale of it? So we basically have two kind of signature programs: our Girls Who Code Summer Immersion Program and our Girls Who Code Clubs. So our summer programs are for rising juniors and seniors. It's free. Uh, we have eighty programs that we're running this summer, and we essentially embed a classroom in a technology company. So we'll take twenty girls, we'll build a classroom at Facebook right, and or Adobe or AT&T, and we'll teach girls to code uh, for seven weeks and in hopes that at the end they go on to major or minor in computer science. About 90% of our students in our summer program are going on to major or minor in CS. How, how, do, you find, how do you find the girls? We are oversubscribed. So we yeah. had 7,000 applicants for 1,600 spots. Um, and this is all over the U.S.? Or? all over the country. Uh-huh. I mean, that's one of the things that really stinks about my job. Like, I'm not running a co- competitive coding camp. Right. Um, but we just we can't meet the demand. And so we're trying to figure that out by offering different program verticals. And then we have after-school clubs, which are middle, middle school on up, and they're hap- we have about 1,500 of those. We're growing towards you know 3,700 in all 50 states, and they happen in homeless shelters, wow. in Indian reservations, in the best private schools in America, like e- everywhere. And so... And what was powerful for me is like I see in a lot of communities, whether it's, you know, in the city where you don't have Wi-Fi, you know, in certain communities, like, for example, in the Bronx, right, that you're offering um, our clubs are giving them a chance at 21st century jobs to like clubs in the Rust Belt, you know, where we have schools that are next to, you know, car uh, Chrysler plants that shut down and the kids, parents have lost their jobs through automation are now recognized that their children have to learn how to program the very robots that are going to replace their jobs. And so it's really, really, really powerful to see how how much demand and interest we have for our program. How does a, like, how, why is there a camp say in the Bronx and not one in, you know, I don't know, Illinois somewhere. Not that there there isn't, but I mean, how do you decide where they go? Is it it dependent on finding 
partners there who sort of take yes. it and run? Or yes. like what's the... So for our summer programs, we're, we started off by building programs in what we were calling like tech ecosystems. So like Boston, Silicon Valley, New York City, because our thought was that we wanted to, for, the, for our partner companies, help them build their a talent pipeline. And then we've expanded that to go to kind of areas where we know that for, that a company will continue to support the program for the next three years. So, you know, that's where we've landed also in places like Atlanta or, you know, in Washington, D.C., where we just have partners who are willing to kind of support the program. We had once had summer programs in in Detroit and we had to leave because we lost our funding and I never want to have to do that again. And who teaches the actual? Is it people who work at the companies who teach? Uh, well, no. we have. Well, we we learned that it's easier to teach a teacher to code than a coder to teach. So we have teachers who teach high school computer science, or women who are who are majoring in computer science. Men, women and men, quite frankly, I think forty percent, thirty to forty percent of our teachers are men. Um, you know, if you're majoring in computer science in college, if you're getting your PhD, or if you're working in industry and you you you're a good teacher. But tell me, let's unpack the te- easier to teach it. Say that again. The, a it's easier to teach a coder to a teacher to code than a coder to teach. Okay. So I think like six years ago, when there were a lot of organizations like us started, everybody thought like I'm going to go to Microsoft. I'm going to get them to give me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fifty te- fifty people who are engineers or software programmers. I'm going to put them in a classroom. And I think what a lot of people learn is that does not work. It's, that's, it's, not, it's a very, it's not very the same skill set. No, yeah. it's not the same skill set. Said any um, producer. And so much of managing to. the classroom, right, yeah. is just as important. And I think the other thing is that there are so many teachers that are art teachers or gym teachers or social science teachers that, that want to learn how to code and that want that skill set. Um, and that we've, so we've, we're like, have a pilot program with 4-H where we're teaching kind of non-technical teachers how to run our clubs. Mm. How's your and so how are your coding skills these days? Have you started? Or <laughs> there, well, I we we do a little bit of a class, like the whole team kind of gets together once a month and learns. Um, since I'm in the thick of my Girls Who Code book, I am getting lots of great tutorials on like the four C's, which are like you know functions, algorithms, loops, and conditionals. Um, it's fun. It's fun at age 41 to like be learning something new yeah. and something that I thought I could never really understand. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, does it make you cranky? I mean, when I used it to, totally makes you cranky. Ago, when I used yeah. to code, it would make me so cranky. My yeah. wife would come home and she'd be like, oh, you're, you're coding, you're cranky right now, I can tell. Yeah, it's but that's what, but it's also very empowering, right? Because you probably will pick up a complicated problem that you know nothing about because you know how to code. Yeah, so you mentioned that you guys are working on a, on a, yeah. on a book. Uh, tell me about that. We're working on 13 books, actually. So wow. we have a coloring and board books for kids, um, a fiction series of like babysitting club meets coders. The first one's called Friendship Code. And then we have our curriculum in a nonfiction graphic novel, so uh, Learn first, to Code, Change the World. So it's fi- the first ones are fiction. So the first books are, the first two books are coming out. One is a nonfiction, one's okay. a fiction book. Okay. Tell me about yeah. the fiction book. So it's uh, it's called Friendship Code. So it's modeled on the babysitting club. So, you know, five girls essentially meet you know, in a, in a, in a coding club and like become friends uh-huh. and, you know, each of the different stories like tells it through each one of the characters. So the first one is like Lucy. Okay. Yeah. And so how, like, well, that seems different than, you know, running girls who code, like, tell me about like, how does that, well, is we it really storytelling feel like about, we need to yeah. shift culture. Uh-huh. So it's like, I can't, I think that like, if you think about like medicine and law, 
you know, 1970s, 10% of doctors and lawyers were women. Now it's 50%. And a lot of that was Grey's Anatomy, L.A. Law, Allie McBeal. Okay. So to me, I think culture can really shape girls' interest. And so all I need is a massive interest shift to happen over the next couple of years, and we can close the gender gap. I'm doing, you know, we're doing our part in Girls Who Code, but w- there's no way we can reach the tens of millions of, you know what I mean, high school students in the yeah. country and in the world. So we need to think creatively about culture. So like, you know, one of the Webby's like we won was for, you know, a video that we did of why girls can't code. Yeah. You know, and it was like so awesome. And we got four million views the first day, right? And it was about kind of like, you know, girls can't code because they have their period. Like it was a spoof, mm. right? And what was so powerful about that was that a lot of girls were sharing the video being like, this is so funny. You have to watch this. And by the way, what's coding? I think I want to learn. Right. So storytelling is a huge part of storytelling, the comedy, of the message, right? right? And yeah. uh, relatability. You know, when I grew up, I I read Sweet Valley High, and I love those books. But I wasn't like five foot seven and blonde and a cheerleader. And so we've been very intentional about these books about making sure that the characters are relatable, right? So you know, Leela has a hijab. You know what I mean? We have girls that are African American, that are Latino, that are in sports, that are athletic, that love to bake, that love to skydive. Like you know, like so so girls can like see themselves in each one of those characters. How old, um, you started off with high school students mostly. We started right? with high school students and now we're at middle school and up. So we're pretty much in the sixth grade to 12th grade. What do you, I mean, do you, when do you think for, whether it's girls or boys, like when do you think? It's never too young. Never too young. Huh? I don't think so. I mean, I think the thing, to me, I read my son every every day, you know, Ada the scientist and Rosie the Revere the engineer. And you know, he, we encourage him to kind of make, break, and take things apart. He's like a little engineer right now. It's yeah. really interesting. How old is he now? Two. Two, wow. So uh, I'm not teaching him scratch right now, right. but uh, I'm teaching him how to be comfortable making and yeah. building and yeah. creating. Uh, one thing people maybe don't know about you, but you talked about at the top that you ran for, we talked about yeah. at the top, you ran for Congress. Yeah. And then public advocate. And you were deputy public advocate yep. for a while under... Bill de Blasio. Uh, how was it working for the city? Uh, it was interesting. Um, I, mean, I learned a lot. It's so right? different. Yeah. I will admit it's much slower than I than I than the pace that I'm used to. Yeah. Um, but it was great. You know, I worked with a lot of really great people. I learned a lot. It was a really good experience. What were sort of the big issues that that the public advocate was yeah. advocating? So I love. Yeah. You know, I think the public advocate's office is actually. I know it gets a lot of slack, but I think it's actually a great office because it's very open-ended. So the things that I worked on is, you know, I created the first scholarship fund for undocumented students because so many undocumented students can't go to college because they can't get access to financial aid. Yeah. And so you have a lot of talented kids um, who who would make such a huge co- contribution to our country uh, that should go to college. And so I started the first scholarship fund for them Um we did a whole project on Citizens United and making sure that we, uh, you know, get money out of politics and brought together people to do that. We did a series of events on uh, urban entrepreneurship with the, with President Obama where we brought together kind of entrepreneurs in the Bronx and then we brought together a bunch of women to talk about, like, what are the skills people need to, like, raise money, to, you know, put their ideas into reality, to, like, you know, get support and to, and to have networks. So, so it was great. Like, it was like, and then... And you liked it enough to run for Congress. So I liked it, was, it enough it to... Yeah, I mean, I liked, well, I liked to, like, to, to run for public advocate. Right. I mean, I, yes. I mean, listen, I think that I grew up looking up to John F. Kennedy. 
like my, you know, my generation felt like politics was the way to be able to really influence change. Mm. I mean, and when I didn't win for public advocate, I was like, you know what? Like I'm going to, I ran on a platform to get computer science in every school. And I was like, I'm just going to do that as CEO of Girls Who Code. And, and we have. Right. And so I, I, I go back and forth. Right. I think that like right now it feels like some of our democracy feels so shattered that like you need people outside of government bringing about real change. So like, you know, I think about right now in the Office of, Public, of Science and Technology, you know, under Obama, there's like 150 people that work there. And now there's one. So I, we can't look to the federal government to come up with innovative policy on computer science education. It's going to be up to the states and it's going to be up to nonprofits yeah. to, to f- do that. To, to finding that alternative means besides. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's easy. It's, uh, people are disillusioned with politicians these days. And there's a lot of really good politicians out there or people who've worked in yeah. that field who are really trying. You know, like David Axelrod, who has... Yeah. Uh, Webby nominated po- podcast Axe Files is like does a great job with just media bringing in yeah you know people who really are public servants and trying to have like nonpartisan discussions and stuff. But what's going on in the news every day is is it's so hard. makes everyone so cynical. But I, but I still think that people should run. Like I think yeah. that women should continue to run, run, run. I mean, if, it's so crazy. I read a stat that of the five hundred thousand elected officials, ninety one percent are white and seventy one percent are men, or it's one of the, or it's the other way around. But it's crazy. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so it, that's very hard for I'm a woman of color to break in. You know, um, I was the first in 2010, I was the first South Asian woman to ever run. That's nuts. Yeah, that makes no sense at so, all. I mean, when I read that, I was yeah, just like, it's crazy. Really? Yeah. But I mean, I think it's just going to take a lot of time. But that doesn't mean that we have to give up. And I think that's the thing I struggle with. Right. It's like you can't give up. Yeah. Do you think that there's better like support networks now in place to encourage women to run for those positions? I mean, I'm on the board of She Should Run, which is an amazing organization um, to get women to run for office. You know, I think Emily's List does does a phenomenal job. Yeah, I do think so. And I think that more women are standing up after uh, this past presidential election and saying, you know what, I'm going to stop screaming at CNN. I'm just going to I need to run. Uh, So we talked a little bit about media. Um, You have the book series coming out, which is you were hopefully going to tell better stories about, yep. you know, encouraging uh, girls who ultimately think that these are places yeah. that they can have jobs. What do you think about, like, how the state of television and, and the rest of news media these days for that type of message? Do you well, think it's we've more been, we, I was just been? in L.A. last week. We've been really thinking about strategically, like, you know, how do we get some of these caricature, caricature, characters, how do we get some of these characters on television? Like, you know, is there you know, a television series or a movie that's, you know, like I thought Hidden Figures was so powerful, right? In mm. terms of like sharing the narrative of these pa- these amazing black women that played a huge role of putting a man on the moon, yeah. you know? Or, or in, and so I think that we don't hear enough that about Ada Lovelace and about, you know, the ENIAC women, you know, pioneers that were, that were, that, you know, were the, were the original computers. Yeah. And so we need to share those stories more. Yeah, they. I mean, you know, we have an award in Europe called the Lovies, which is named yeah. after. Yeah, oh, that's Lovelace. awesome. Yep. Um, but I, it's amazing that the world's first computer program was a woman, and that's so un. Oh, widely we went unknown, to right. Yeah, we went to the high school down the street. And we asked them, "Do you know who Ada Lovelace is?" Yeah. They'd be like, "Who?" Yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me about like what's uh, like what's your plan for the next f- five years for Girls yeah. Who Code? You guys, girl you have, domination. You, I said, you guys, you <laughs> women have uh, you have the year long program. Yeah. You have the camps. Yeah. Um, what's, what's sort of like, how do you see so, and your overall goal is to, um, 
you know, change the, the, yeah. the gap. So like, what's the, what's the yeah. next few years look like? So, you know, we've taught 40,000 women, uh, which is powerful because only 7,000 women graduated in computer science last year. So like we did a study with Accenture that said that, you know, right now about 24% of the computing workforce is female. If we do nothing in 10 years, that number will go down to 22%. Wow. So it's getting worse for women. Um, and so we have to change that. And so for us, it's about thinking about how our programs can meet demand and how we can continue to disrupt culture. We've launched an advocacy campaign and really thinking about how do we make sure that we continue to have the gender conversation in schools so that when computer science is offered, we're getting more young women in it. Can we so talk we have, more just for a minute? Why, I, it's still like, why is it getting so, it, it's just so counterintuitive that it's getting worse. Well, I mean, if you think about it, right, like every boy wants, like, this, more boys want to go into computer science now because Mark Zuckerberg right. and the social network. It's just the role And everyone's model. dreaming of a billion. Right. He was a huge role model for them. Yeah. Who do girls have? And I think we haven't fixed the culture. We still sell You know, I can still walk into Forever 21 and buy a T-shirt that says I'm allergic to algebra. We still celebrate that girls are not good at math and science. Right, right. We haven't changed that narrative. And so I, I bug Shonda Rhimes all the time because I, I feel like the next scandal show on like a cool female coder combined with Disney's next character, right? On, on, uh, that's a game changer. Right. So I, as, as I'm not disheartened, I'm actually quite excited because I believe that in the conversion numbers that we're seeing with our graduates, how easy and sometimes it is that when you expose a young girl to this, how quickly you can have her shift her interest, to me means if we, make the, if we pull the right levers mm. from a cultural point of view, we can fix this. Right. So the, it's the, the, the biggest challenge is not actually like the training part. It's actually no. just getting people interested yes. and aware of it and wanting yeah. to do it. Yeah. yeah. That, because that there's inspiring. so many resources online. Like if, let's just say the school system can't get it together. Right? right now, one out of four schools offers computer science. Let's just say that stays the same. You continue to have programs like Girls Who Code. And then you, you, know, you really shift culture. Girls can get online at Khan Academy yeah. you know, and, learn how to, and learn how to program. So they have the fundamentals. Like, we can do this. This problem is solvable. Yeah. We are looking forward to you solving it. <laughs> Rashna, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. It's been great to have you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much to Reshma for stopping by and speaking with us. If you're interested in signing up for a course or signing up your daughter for a programming class or you just want to learn more, visit girlswhocode.com. Our producer is Ben Wagner. Thanks to Nicole Ferraro and Michael Charbonneau for editorial help this week. As always, our show music is Straight West by Casket Club. Thanks to you, as always, for listening. We'll see you next week. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.